We've been finishing up a series, or I should say we are finishing up a series this month called We Are. Um, through the month of January, we've been kind of talking about this idea of our identity as a church. And so we've kind of talked about several things. We started off with the idea that we're dreamers. We've been called to dream. And, you know, nothing worse than when we kind of get to that place where we no longer have a future and an option. And so that's what we're called to be. We're called to be dreamers. And we looked at the life of Nehemiah. We went on to look at this idea um, that we are one. Though we are different backgrounds, different nationalities, different, uh, I mean, political persuasions, we're all different. Yet God calls us not to be different, but to come together as a single family in spite of our differences and to work through our differences. And he calls us to be one. We went on into this idea that we were made for greatness, that God didn't just call us to stop in and be satisfied with mundane, but he called us into greatness. And then last week, we began to look at this idea as a church that God has made us or that we are made to be here. And we were talking about the idea of last week, we're here for the kiddies. As we begin to go through a major reconstruction program on our building and we begin to say it's time to kind of get our minds prepared and ready because as we do go through a reconstruction, it's going to get dusty and noisy and things are going to be chaotic for a while. But that's okay because we will put up with these things because we know who we are and who we're for. We're going to kind of continue where we were at last week and kind of push on to one more idea and I kind of want to close with this, and we could go a lot farther. In fact, there are so many ideas as we talk about our identity as a church that I literally could keep on going, but we kind of probably better get ready to close this down. But I want to talk about one important thing, and that is we are people of grace. There's an old saying that says, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, but actions speak louder than words we're all so familiar with that because we know as we're growing up, we've all known those people who will talk and they'll talk and they'll talk and they'll talk, yet what they are never matches what they say. For example, if you know me, I'm a person who, I, I, I'm gonna be careful how I say this because I'm a person who is for eating healthy, less sugar, eating good raw foods, drinking a little kombucha now and then for that good gut health. I believe in exercise when I do it. However, if you put a three-mile run in front of me or a slab of German chocolate cake, I will tell you what is gonna win. It won't be hot and sweaty and out of breath, okay? That sweet German chocolate cake with all those lovely fudgy and nuts and okay. It's easy to say one thing and there's another thing to actually be it. We're going to talk today about, as a church, how we are called to be something that we all believe in. And in fact, I know this from a fact that as a church, because of what we do, we believe in this strongly. In fact, that's why we do things such as embrace grace and 
and all these other things. And that is the idea of grace. And so we're going to talk about what we say we believe in, but there are times when what we say we believe in, how we live it out, kind of comes into conflict with each other. Grace is an idea that I hate talking about because I never fully understand it. Now, I understand the, I can give you the theological definitions and I can talk to you about how God showed and bestowed his grace on us, but how does it actually play out in my life and how do I live it out? I struggle. And so not as we talk about this, I'm not coming from a place of, here, you need to follow my example, even though I hope I'm trying to live it out so that you can the reality is, is I'm coming from a place of, I so don't have this word figured out yet, but we know someone who did, and we're to follow his example. And so to try to help us understand this idea, I'm going to start with, okay, let's do the theological meaning, okay? For those of you who like a little doctrine with your sermon, the idea of grace simply means this. It means unmerited favor. It's the idea that you deserved one thing, but it's not just that you got mercy, like you didn't get what you deserved. I mean, that's what mercy is, is when we don't get what we deserved. We deserved a, a black eye, and someone didn't give us a black eye. Instead, they turned around and bought us a cheeseburger. Buying us a cheeseburger is the act of grace. You deserved a black eye, and I didn't, so I showed you mercy. But God gives us grace. In a sense, he gives us unmerited, unasked for favor. He bestows his love on us. So when we begin to talk about God's grace for us, we talk about the idea that when we were still in our sins, he didn't just say, I forgive you, but he came and he paid for the sins for us. That's what the cross is about. He gave his life willingly for us. That's grace. He gives us a place, offers us a place in heaven. That's grace. He bestows grace upon us. He makes us his child. That's grace. We don't deserve any of those things. In fact, if we go through our lives, we're showed grace time and time and time again. As Jesus talks about grace, though, he goes to this one point and he tells his disciples, all right, I have showed you how grace works and I have told you about grace and I, we, we talk about how I have given you. Well, let's just put it this way. In Matthew chapter 10, verse eight, he, he says this. Give as freely as you have received. So as we begin to talk about grace and as we begin to talk about what God has done for us and as we begin to talk about this unmerited outrageous act of love that he gives to us. He looked at his disciples and he said, you see how I bestow grace on others. Now I want you to do that also. How I have bestowed grace upon you and now I want you to do what you've had done for you. Now I believe if Jesus was standing here this morning, he would give us the exact same piece of advice as I have given to you so you do for others. Now, there's this part of us that says, okay, I know I'm called to grace. I know God's been gracious to me. I, I know that's how we're to live, 
But how does that work? How does that look? I mean, to be honest, grace is something really easy to talk about on a Sunday morning as we're standing in church in all of our nice clothes, surrounded by all nice people, and it's easy. But how does grace really lives itself out? Now, Jesus teaches us how to live by grace, not by the words he used, but by the actions he lived out. And so to help us understand what grace looks like, I'm going to refer to you back to John chapter 8, and I want to tell you a story, one that we are all familiar with. In fact, if you have been in church for any time at all, you know this story. But it helps us to understand, and it illustrates so clearly God's grace. In John chapter 8, we read a story about how Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Shelters. Now, we don't have time to explain all that this morning, but there were several feasts that they celebrated through the year. And the Feast of Shelters had to do with this idea of celebrating when they came out and they lived in temporary shelters and they'd put up little huts and they would sleep a few nights in their little huts. And anyhow, they were celebrating the Feast of Shelters. And Jesus went into the temple to teach. Now, we're coming into the very last year of Jesus' ministry, and so we're coming to the end. And as we come to the end of his ministry, there's getting to be a real tension everywhere that Jesus goes. This tension is beginning to build because the crowds are absolutely, they're loving Jesus. They're loving what he does, what he teaches his miracle, I mean, it's all, they're, they're gathering by the tons, by the throngs. Yet there's another side. There's a religious and the political figures, and they were actually one and the same. We're getting to a point in a place where they were trying to figure out how do we take care of this man by the name of Jesus once and for all? How do we, like, make him disappear? And so time after time, they had tried to trap him with different teachings and try to get people off sides. And time after time, they had tried to get him off sides with the religious leaders and the political leaders. And how can we just like get him so where people would hate him? But it never seemed to come across. And so here we find once more, Jesus is in the temple and this tension is beginning to build. The hatred is obvious. There's the love on the one side, and then there's this hate. And, and so as Jesus is in the temple, I want you just to stop and take the moment to kind of imagine with me what this is like. So the temple is a great big compound. There's a building. There's kind of a wall that sort of surrounds it, and it's a pretty large compound. And Jesus is in that outside compound, and there's a great group of people surrounding him. And all of a sudden, in all of this teaching that's going on, there begins to be a commotion off in the distance. You can just start hearing it. There's the kind of, it's just noise to start with. It's just there in the background. There's this little rumble, and you kind of hear voices being raised. But very quickly, it starts getting closer. You can hear the shouts. You can hear screaming. And all you see as you look up, you can see this little throng of crowd, this little crowd of, of guys just over there, and it's moving towards Jesus. But they're not really focused on Jesus at this moment. What you notice is they're focused on someone in the middle of that throng. 
And as that throng gets closer, you notice there's this group of guys that are hollering at, screaming at, spitting, kicking, accusing, shoving a young lady in the middle of that group of guys. It is a horrendous scene as if you could have seen it that day. It's something that would have made your heart drop. Here's a group of guys literally taking it out on a young woman. And as they get to Jesus, they kind of shove her to the front of the crowd and, and basically shove her at Jesus' feet and said, aha, we've got you. Here's how John writes it. And I want you to imagine as you're sitting here, sometimes we read these words, but I want you to feel the emotion that is going behind these words. And here's what John says in John chapter eight. He says this, and as he was speaking or as he was teaching, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd and said, teacher or teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? You see, their anger and their contempt had gotten so bad towards Jesus that they were willing to take a person and to sacrifice her. And I mean literally have a young woman put to death in order to prove a point, in order to stop and say, how can we get Jesus off sides of the crowds? You see, in their mind, they were convinced they had finally trapped Jesus because Jesus had gone around teaching what? We're called to love. We're called to forgive. We're called to have grace and bestow grace on others. We are called to, to, to hey, reach out. And if someone smacks you, what are we to do? Well, we're to turn our other cheek. If someone borrows a coat, he says, let them have, borrow your coat. And if they need it so bad, don't even ask for it in return. And he, he kind of went to this place of saying, you are called to give and be gracious and to love. In fact, his teaching went even farther than that because it wasn't just about loving and giving, but it went to this point of saying, there is a father in heaven who loves you so much. He wants a personal connection with you. He's not looking to kind of come down and condemn you and, and to smack you every time you get out of line. In fact, he wants to come with you and, and to live in you and to, and to be with you. And you can have a relationship with your heavenly father. You don't need to go through religious leaders. You can come to him on your own. And here, his anger is so great There's hatred so, so unmentionable that they've taken a young woman saying, we've got him. Jesus, you say you're God. Moses said he got this law from God that if a woman was caught in adultery, what should happen to her? Uh, you know what Moses said. Moses said if she was caught in adultery, stone her. Put her to death. 
So Jesus, what should we do with this woman? We caught her. And as Jesus is standing there, he doesn't say anything. He just stoops down. Kind of, I don't know what's going through his head and the hurt and the anguish, but he stoops down and he begins to write in the dirt. At this moment, the the guys do not see anything. They cannot see what is happening. They do not see the young woman and all of her pain and suffering. They do not see Jesus as he's writing in the ground. They are convinced they are going to get him to say something. They have him. They do not see the young woman who stopped and, and had been in love. The woman who'd had some young guy who was sat and whispered sweet things into her ears and promised her promises that he did not keep. They do not see right now the anguish and and how, look, this is something that was so private has now been made so public. The hurt, the anguish. And Jesus just quietly, without saying a word, continues to scribble something in the dirt. Come on, Jesus. Are you just gonna sit there and say nothing? Are you only really good? Are you really good for just preaching all that love and and niceness and you can have a relationship with? What about God? God gave this law. Come on, Come on, Jesus. Tell us what you think. And finally, Jesus raises up off the ground. And he looks up at him and he says, all right, guys. You want to do this? You want to put this young lady to death? Let's do it. And the amazing thing is, is as they're sitting here, as they're talking this way, they forgot there's actually, it takes two to commit adultery and somewhere, somehow, they were able to catch one and not the other. Why is that? And I'm sure in the back of this poor girl's mind is she's probably thinking, what happened to that guy I loved? Where's he at now when I'm in need? Did he set me up? Was I being used in order to try to set Jesus up? Is that what this was about? Maybe he made promises to me he had no intentions of keeping and when things got tough, he took off. It might have been, and let's just be honest with you, the reality is it might have been the fact is, is that, hang on, I don't want to put a guy to death because, well, that's not very good. But let's be honest, at this stage in their history, women had little value. In fact, there was a prayer that guys would often pray that said, God, I would have rather have been a dog than a woman. But for some reason, this idea that somehow they had caught Jesus and they had got him into a spot where he could not, he couldn't go anywhere. He looks at him and he says, guys, if this is really where your heart is going, Let's do this. The only thing I want to ask is that the one who hasn't done anything wrong, I want you to be the first one to throw the stones. And at that moment, he reaches down and he starts writing in the dirt again. Now, I'm not sure what he was writing. 
I don't know. I don't know whether he was simply just writing certain things such as greed, hatred, envy, jealousy, hypocrisy, blasphemy, lust. I don't know what he was writing. He might have gotten a little bit more intense and he might have started writing names and dates. Remember, January the 4th, 4 BC. What about Patricia last weekend? I don't know. We know that all of a sudden, as the old guys began to look down and saw what he was writing, we read that they silently exited quickly. And it says, and they all left from the oldest to the youngest. You see, what we understand, condemning is really easy. Condemning someone else is really, really easy to do, isn't it? I mean, put it this way. I drive every day, and as I take my son down to school, we drive past several street corners where there are people with signs. With certain things on them. And I can tell you this really easy. Without even knowing the person, I know everything about them. And probably alcoholics, drug addicts, poor choices. I know they've made poor choices. Don't look at them. I don't need anything. Don't we stop and have certain things that we say? They made poor choices. You get what you, what's the old saying? You reap what you sow. What goes around comes around. What have we done? Now, I know you guys never do that, but I find myself constantly battling this temptation and this urge to stop and say, I know what this person's going through when I have never even met this person. Because one of the things that I find in my life, and I'm sure you find in your life, is that condemning is easy. You know someone who's got some money problems? Hey, if they took care of their money like I took care of my money, they wouldn't have any problems. If they would just work a little harder... They had an opportunity to get some overtime and they said no to it. You know what I'm talking about. The problem or the reason why they have money problems is because what about marriage problems? Oh, now those get to be the juicy ones, doesn't it? Don't we all love a good, I mean, did you hear about so-and-so? I heard that... um,
If only he would stop and stay home and not work so long, their marriage would probably work out, wouldn't it? See, one thing I know that about me and one thing I know about you is that we find condemning easy. It's a part of our nature. It's a part of who we are. Did you see what their kids did? I know you missed it, so I better tell you because, you know, if they were good parents, this is what they would have done. Obviously, someone didn't teach them on how to handle and, you know, and I know you missed it, so let me tell you. You see, we find this idea of condemning really easy and and the idea of grace, yeah, I believe in grace when it's given to me. (laughs) But to live out grace as Jesus did. He calls us something greater than. When we're at this point, you ever thought about it? When we're at this point of stopping to say, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? If only they had done what I had told them to. If only they were a little bit stronger If only they would work harder. If only they were, and we have all these explanations. And about this time, I can almost imagine Jesus stooping down and kind of in our dirt of our lives, beginning to write some stuff. He could probably write some names. He could probably write some dates. He could begin to write some issues. Do you remember your anger at problems you deal with. You see, one of the things that I find so true is that, so, that, that condemning is so easy, but I also have these little things in my life that I kind of have snuck and hidden into back closets that I hope no one opens up and looks into. There are things that all of us have done in our past that we didn't want our mamas to ever find out about. There are things that we deal with that we may have been able to kind of keep hidden. They're, they're private and they're, because they're private and nobody can see them. It doesn't really exist, does it? The fact is, is that Jesus looks down into our hearts and can actually see what's in the crevices and the closets of our life. As Jesus begins to look, as we begin to stop and say, hey, if only they were stronger, if only they were a little bit, if they were only a little more spiritual, if they only trusted God a bit more, if only they, and Jesus begins to write in the dirt of our life. It's at those moments that we need to be reminded of something that Paul writes. And I'm just so glad that as God stoops down and begins to write in the dirt of our lives, that he doesn't do it publicly in front of everyone else, does he? In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul wrote a couple of really, he wrote this interesting thought, and he says this, God saved you by his grace 
when you believed. Now, you can't take credit for that. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. And then he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he makes this little thought. And he says this, there is, or so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. There are two words in both of these passages that continue that just burn their, I don't know what you say, their impression upon our minds, or they should burn their impression on our minds. And those are the words grace and condemnation. You see, one of the things that as Paul writes about the idea of condemnation and grace, here's what he did. He had to live with a life where he probably condemned himself quite regularly. You see, the Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, was a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And the Saul of Tarsus guy was not a nice guy. The Saul of Tarsus guy had people put to death for following Jesus. The Saul of Tarsus guy, he, he had families broken apart and dads thrown in prison. This Saul of Tarsus guy had, had people's wealth confiscate him, confiscated from them. And I imagine every morning there's this little thing that would kind of wake up in him as he would lay there and it would simply kind of come back to him. Do you remember Stephen? Paul, do you remember how you held the coats of all those who stoned him? Do you remember all those guys you put into prison whose families now had no income? Paul, do you, do you remember actually having people's properties confiscated from them, Paul? And Sneagle thought, I'm sure, was constantly coming back. You see, the Saul of Tarsus was not a nice guy. In fact, he was a guy that we probably wouldn't really want to know. And so Paul had to come to this place where, God, you have bestowed grace on me. You have given me unmerited favor. When I was undeserving, when, I, when what I really deserved was really something awful, Instead, you chose to give me grace, and now there is no condemnation. Yeah, I have to live with it in my own mind, but God, thank you for not holding it against me. You have given grace. You see, when we think of Paul, we think of Super Paul, the man who started churches. And started more churches than anyone else. We think of the guy who was willing to suffer for his faith. And actually in the end ended up dying for his faith. But Paul reminds us. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because God has given his grace to us. Nothing we could do. We couldn't earn it. We are the woman pushed into the crowd. Each and every one of us has a past and a history that causes us to be the woman pushed at the feet of Jesus. 
with, in a sense, others pointing at us, screaming at us, hollering at us, saying, look at what you did. You're a failure. You've lost. You're done. Your future is no more. And Jesus says, there's now no more. No more. There's no more condemnation. Condemnation. You're forgiven. All right. So what does it look like? We can talk about grace. We can talk about unmerited favor. So if we've been freely given this grace, if all of us have been freely forgiven and freely loved and freely offered a, a, a something that we did not deserve. What does it look like? How do we bestow it onto others? Now, this is where the sermon falls down. You know why that is? Because I don't know exactly what it looks like. I can't quite explain it. Because every time I try to get in and niggle as thing of grace out, it trips me up every time. Because I understand there are sometimes, there's times when we have to have justice in order for society to work. I get it. Yes, I get there are times we all have to have boundaries in our lives in order to protect ourselves. But he continues to tell us, you're to live out grace. I don't know what grace really looks like in your life. I do know this. You have been freely given to. Somehow, you're to freely give. Somehow, grace is supposed to be something that we are to give away. And what does it look like? Well, I don't really know because each of us have experienced different things in our life. And what is gracious for me, I don't know if I can truly live out because I don't know, it, it's a struggle. I do know this, though. If we're to live by grace, we have to stop seeing people for their mistakes and see a person that Jesus died for. How does grace live itself out? I don't know. But I do know there is a person made in the image of God. I don't pretend to have the answers this morning when it comes to this idea. How does grace look like in your life? I don't know, but I do know when it's been extended to me. I do understand that there's been times when, when I've had to have someone say, ah, I give you my grace. And I've been so thankful. What does it look like? I'm not sure. But I can say as a church, may we continue to strive to be even what we cannot fully grasp. That's difficult. Look, actions do speak louder than words. And I know that in my life, I will continue to believe in exercise and a good diet. But I will continue to be honest with you. I will always lose that battle if there's a slab of German chocolate cake in front of me. If you get me at home group and you say, hey, there's German chocolate cake here. Would you like some? I will definitely not turn it down. You 
Yet as we continue to strive for that which we know is right, let us continue to strive after an idea that I may not know exactly what this will look like, but I will continue to try to live a life that sees people not for who or what they have done, but for who loved them and gave their life for them. As we have been freely given to, let us freely give. Father, this morning, we stand here and we can talk about grace. And Father, I know I have so often, I've battled with this because I know there have been people who have hurt us and have done things that have been wrong. And I don't know exactly how to always live by grace. Father, I want to. I want to be that person who, who is willing to give from where it hurts sometimes. But Father, I sometimes just don't really know how to live it out. But Father, I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful that you love me and that you gave your life for me. And so Father, as we try as a church to practice what we know we already believe in, we don't doubt it. Father, may we hold on to an idea that we have been freely given to and we're called to freely give. Help us to see others not for their mistakes or their past, but as a person that you loved and you died for. In your name we pray.